Matthew 19. You guys are there. Last time we were together, which was last Wednesday. Shh. All right, students. I know. Give a teenager sugar and they start to talk. You can settle down for a second. So, as we were discussing last week in our passage of Matthew chapter 19, 1 through 15, we were exploring Jesus' teaching on divorce. <clears throat> and we were looking at a couple perspectives on divorce. And I'll go back a few slides so you can see. So, let me give you some context if you weren't with us <clears throat> and explain why we're back here tonight. We're looking at, there were some men who in these Pharisees that have a desire for divorce. And they come to Jesus and they want to know, hey, what are, how do I work this out? What do you say? We've got a, a few different opinions that we hear and we want to know which one's right. Jesus responds by teaching them about the design for divorce. When divorce was created, what was the purpose of it? If you don't know, then you're welcome to ask me afterward and, or someone and we can talk about that. And then we went to discussing how there is this delirium or there is this confusion about the divorce then. Because of Jesus' teaching on the design for divorce. Or the design before divorce, I should say. Then we went to discussing how there is this level of disgrace because of divorce. And if you weren't with us last Wednesday, don't just read into something, all right? That's just me using um, <clears throat> alliteration and the motivation of how they're interacting with the word divorce, all right? <clears throat> so, that being said, where did we leave off last week? We had a discussion, and that's why we came back to it, is what about abuse? Because when we read through Matthew chapter 19, the only excuse, Malachi, that Jesus elaborates on for divorce is sexual immorality. And then we went and we looked at Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we started talking about what, what Paul says going on. And then we kind of left off there. That was the last thing. Um, and Paul left it open with, let me encourage you to stay together because you don't know to what degree the unbeliever or the unsaved individual or the rebelling individual may be changed because of the believing individual. That was, that was kind of where we left it off. Why does that matter? And that's where we're picking up tonight. Why does it matter? Why would anyone encourage, whether that be Jesus or Paul, why would anyone encourage someone to stay in a marriage that seems like it's broken? Okay, the answer to that is this, and I have it on the screen. Zoe, you want to read it for me? Sure. Marriage is a picture of something bigger than you. Marriage is a picture of something bigger than you. Now, now what do we mean by that? Well, I'm glad you asked. When you look at marriage, and we talked about this, and I know we kind of have to reset and recalibrate our minds because some of you weren't with us, but those of you that were, you got all your giggles out last week, so it's not going to be a problem. Okay, but when we look at God's desire 
God's desire is always reconciliation. Now, that's a big fancy word. Someone help me out. What does reconciliation mean? What does to be reconciled mean? What does to reconcile mean? What, what does that word mean? What, Tyler? Yeah, to come back to, to make whole again. All right. Um, Sean, if you guys don't know, Sean's in the insurance world. You ever have to reconcile things in the, in the insurance world, Sean? What's it mean in the insurance world if you have to reconcile something? Make someone whole again. Yeah, you have to make someone whole again. You have to fix the problem. You guys, this is, this is lost on you because it's really almost lost on me. We used to do this thing, Misael, I don't know if you've learned about it in college yet, called balancing a checkbook. You all even know what a checkbook is? You know what a check is? Like, I know what a check mark is. All right. We used to have to, Brian, when we had math, when I was in high school, we had to balance checkbooks. You had to reconcile. You had to make this side over here, students, agree with this side over here. And if the two did not equal the same answer, there is a problem. That's what reconciling means. It means to bring both sides to the same point, the same answer. Students, God's desire in a marriage is always that. It is never tearing apart. It is never separating. It is always bring it back to where it's supposed to be. Let me give you three pictures of that. Number one, in creation. God created the world. That world fell. Genesis chapter 3, it rebelled against him. And the rest of your Bible, Naomi, is God reconciling the world back to where it was. You open up your Bible in Genesis, you see God and mankind in paradise dwelling together. You read the last couple chapters of your Bible, and what do you see? God and man in paradise living together. What you see is you see a tree beginning it, and you see a tree ending it. The tree of life is present at beginning and end. You see throughout all of the Bible, it broke, and God fixes it. Okay? That's creation. In Israel, your Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, you have a people that is breaking their marriage relationship with God and God constantly going back after them and saying, no, you are mine, you are my people, I'm fixing you, we're going to reconcile this. And then you see within a husband and a wife, you see that in marriage, that it is supposed to re identify with that relationship. So, God's desire for reconciliation is as critical in a husband and wife relationship as it is in God's creation relationship. That's how big a deal that is. Yes, Zoe? So is he, he's basically saying, wait, you don't know how broke it is. Maybe it's not that broke. Maybe you can fix it. Maybe God can fix it. Is that what he's saying? I would, I would suggest to you that it is. Or, Pastor Jonathan mentioned it when we talk about the cross. Who in a terrible marriage, and I don't know your household, I don't know your family dynamic. Some of you may be in a family that has, has had to endure something that we wouldn't talk about in a public setting. But who of us 
has ever endured so much abuse that your own kinfolk, family, your own relatives, your own people crucified you saying you don't belong to us. Have any of you endured that? I don't think so. You're all here. Exactly. But that's what Jesus endured. So, while those things are terrible, we have to ask ourselves, are we being like Christ if we endure some things that we don't like? So now, let's look at the disinterest before divorce. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 of chapter 19. We're going to get all the way to chapter to verse 10 because that's the one that we need to look at. But I want to get context. Now when Jesus, verse 1, had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. Keep in mind, this is Jesus on his last trip into Jerusalem. He will be dying in a chapter or so in his last week of life. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command, remember we talked about that last week, they said Moses commanded us to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus responds to them in verse 8, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning that was not so. And I, Jesus, says to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now we're at our verse, verse 10. The disciples said to him, because this is where we're talking about the disinterest before divorce. If divorce is like that, Jesus, here's what the disciples said. If such is the case of a man with his wife, If those are the rules, the twelve say, it is better not to marry. If I have to be married like that, Brian, I don't even want to get married. I will stay away from marriage if that's what it means when I get into it. So do you think what Jesus had said was easy for the disciples to understand? No. No. Okay, see, we read this, and sometimes, depending on our family situation, our family dynamic, we're like, oh, yeah, well, obviously that's the case. Some of us may read this, and and maybe you're from a divorced family. Maybe you're in a blended family. Maybe you're dealing with it right now, and this is very real for you. And the disciples are saying, if that's what you mean, Jesus, I would prefer to never get married because I can't go down that road like, That kind of bondage is ridiculous, to be stuck in a marriage like that. But then Jesus says to them, not everyone can receive the same. Now, he's not saying not everyone can hear this. He's saying not everyone can live this out. 
Who can then, Jesus? But only those, he says in verse 11, to whom it's been given. What does that mean? What does that mean that not everyone can, only those to whom this has been given? Jubal? Okay, so maybe it's on the wife side of things that it's that God has given you your what? Your spouse. All right? I think it's more than that. Zoe, what do you think? Uh, maybe it's that you can't live this out unless you're with the right person, like the person that God intended you to be with. Okay, so <clears throat> let's ask this question then. We've got some Bible scholars in the room. They know all the previous chapters. Where does God say in the Bible that there's only one person out there for you to marry, and you have to find Mr. Right or you have to find Mrs. Right? <laughs> you're going to have to give me chapter and verse, Sean, if you're going to say that there is. Was that uh, two or three? Adam, oh, two. two. Just two, Adam. Said you've been but is that descriptive left. or prescriptive? Is that describing what happened, or is that saying this is how it happens for everybody? Uh, I believe it's prescriptive. Mm. I would disagree. Well, no, descriptive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's just yeah, describing it's just what just happened. Describing what happened. Okay, so then it's not prescriptive in the sense that this is for you, and that when Samantha is is ready, that she's got to find that one man that God has designed for her to marry. Right. No. I mean, and if you go to the wrong school, you turn at the wrong street. You attend the wrong church. You click X on the, you know, delete on the wrong email. Any of those things, and you could miss your knight in shining armor, and it's all over for you. No. Is that, is that, I mean, my, that's what, that's I what call this. My, my, my swole mate. Your swole mate? My swole mate. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Zoe. I mean, like, well, the, in Genesis, like, when Adam was like, I'm lonely, help me. Didn't like God be like, I made this woman for you. Here no, you Adam go, never Adam. complains. Hmm? Adam never complains. Well, I know, but I was saying, like, wasn't he like, this is woman for you? Yeah, God's, you go. God so, like, sees what he has Adam. created, and God's response to God's oversight of what he has done is it's not good for man to be alone. I've made a helper worthy of him. Right, that's what I'm saying. So maybe it's like that. I don't know. That's what I want to talk about. See, because let's be honest. From the time, like, girl-wise, you hit about seventh grade or so, and you start to think that first boy, whoever it is, is cute. Are you laughing because you remember that one, Abby? All right. And you start to, you know, find the opposite gender attractive. We start to have these grand visions of what future will be like. Whether you have a celebrity crush and he has to look like Channing Tatum, which he's kind of old now for you guys. All right. Did you just say Channing Tatum? I said Channing Tatum. Do they know who that is? Half of them do. He's a dude from Chris Panthers. All right. All right. You start thinking about what you want that person to be like. You start watching, you know, I was I was in the, I'll say the, the best Disney generation, all right? You start watching a movie like Mulan, and you learn you have to be true to your heart. Okay? 
Because that's very much the Disney mantra, is that you have to find this knight in shining armor. You're looking for a knight in shining armor, but really what you get is a loser, you know, with a tinfoil hat. Okay. Oh, you saw that tweet too? All right, but we have these ideas, and we start thinking about that. Let's be honest. I'm not going to ask you any details. How many of you have at least had that thought once in your life? About, like, what that person you're going to marry is, be li- is going to be like or what you want them to be like. Josh, raise your hand. I know you've thought about this. What Mrs. Wright's going to look like. <laughs> He has incriminated himself. All right, students. Hey, guys. I understand. I I released you on that one. Draw back in. I want you to think about this for just a second. As, As much of a daydream as that might be, when Jesus started talking about marriage, to his most loyal followers. They considered their walk with God to be critical. Their response was, then I probably shouldn't get married. Now, several of them will get married. We don't have record on a lot of them. Peter is already married at this point because we read of his mother-in-law in the passage, in the gospel. Okay. But we still don't have an answer to my question on, but only those to whom it has been given can receive. What does that mean? All right, let's talk about this. What does it mean to receive this saying? What's that mean? What does it mean when Jesus says, not everyone can receive this saying? What does he mean? Go ahead, John. Okay, good. So the saying does not apply to everyone. It does apply to some people. Now, who does it apply to? Us, now that we heard it? I don't know. All right, what, Tyler? Those who can't accept it. Those who can't accept it? To Christians? I don't know. There's, Josh, there's a lot of unsaved people that have stayed married for their entire lives. So what does it, okay, so if not everyone can receive it, it only applies to a certain group. What does it mean, but only those to whom it is given? Abby? I have a concept, but I might tell you. Okay. So, necessarily, I wouldn't say, like, it's not technically, like, given out. Like, they're not walking up to you, like, here's a marriage certificate, have a good day. Who's giving it out? I said, no one's giving it out. Who's giving it out, though? He says it's only good for those who get it. Only to those who it's given. So who's doing the giving? God is. Okay, students. Okay, you have to recognize the success of a marriage is entirely dependent upon God. Oh. So I was right? Yes, in a roundabout way. Okay. And then Jesus starts to elaborate on this. And this is, this is a fun concept. I'll explain the word. Um, if you want more details, you can ask me later. In verse 12, Jesus goes on to say, For there are eunuchs 
a eunuch is a man, so he's addressing men because his disciples are the ones that have come to him and said this. He says, there are eunuchs. A eunuch is a man who is physically enabled to have children. And now Jesus will describe several, several scenarios whereby they may have become a eunuch. There are those who have been so from birth, meaning something biological as they were born, they will never be able to have bear children. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by mankind. And there are those, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. So he says there are three kinds of eunuchs. There are those who were never physically able to have children. There are those who, because of some interaction, usually torture or imprisonment or slavery, have been made eunuchs by mankind. And then there are those who choose to become a eunuch because of their love for the kingdom of heaven. Yes, Abby. I have a question. Yeah. Guys, I can't hear her question if you're talking. <laughs> if like God is so gracious, why are the people in the world who are infertile? Someone answer her question. If God is gracious, why are there people who are infertile? All right, Tyler says it's a fallen world. Josh, what were you saying? It's not their chosen path. Okay. God has orchestrated that they not be able to have children. Okay, Zoe? Sometimes bad things happen to good people. I would disagree with you. Bad things do not happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. Well, that too? No, that only. Your premise is that there are good people. Oh, well, I mean, I mean, sometimes, well, true, you're right. All right, Abby, does that answer your question? So... What do we do then if they are a believer who loves God and they're just physically unable to have kids? No babies, I guess. What do you? All right, hey. Go, wait, go ahead, Izzy. Okay, so you're, you're telling us the story of Samuel, literally. His mother, Hannah, was barren. She prayed for a child, and after he was weaned, she returned him. There's a lot of chatter in this row, and it needs to stop. All right, there are lots of other stories. Abraham and Sarah, Zachariah and Elizabeth. Yeah, Leah and Rachel, the two sisters that both had married Jacob, the one was barren for a very long time. John the Baptist barren. That'd be Zechariah and Elizabeth. Oh. <laughs> All right. So it happens. So here's what we have to recognize. Either it's the first answer that Tyler said, and it's the result of living in a fallen world, or it is direct from the hand of the Lord that he chooses not to give us children. And that's, that's, a, that's a hard concept to grasp. Why would God intentionally not give someone children? 
I don't know. If we're honest, God does lots of things that I have no idea why he does. Mm -hmm. But what we have to understand is this. While we believe that God is sovereign, God is the ruler over everything, God is not responsible for every stupid choice you make. But, I mean, every if, choice you make is worse. No, but, see, hurt. Abby, that's where the conversation has to go, is you don't know to what degree someone who is infertile, whether it's a man or a woman, because both instances happen, you don't know to what degree... It is simply just genetic information that does not allow it, you to conceive. Which, not that we have time to dive into this, but those of you who are familiar with um, various types of infertility treatments, ask yourself this question. If God does not give a husband and a wife the ability to bear children naturally, to what degree is it pushing against the will of the Lord for them to spend money to have children? In the sense of the different type of scientific advances that we have now. Well, and some of them, Blake, are very simple. It could very well be. Um, in fact, I have a cousin that this was the case for her. Cysts would form within her body at the time in which she would be able to conceive a child. And so they had to basically fertilize the egg outside of the body and then implant it. There is so much in the world of infertility treatments that we can't even get into it tonight. Okay, there are entire chapters of books on it. There are entire books on it. But... It, that's my that's my point, Tyler. I'm asking that question. Like, am I am I spending so much money and so much in resources? Uh, I mean, you all will never talk to her because she doesn't talk to me either. Um, okay, my cousin and her husband spent close to a hundred thousand dollars so that they could have children. Did it work? Yeah. But w for the the question on that is okay. When it comes to stewardship, did God want you to spend a hundred thousand dollars so that you could have children, or did you want that? and you refuse to accept God's will for your life. Even if it is something that it, it's, it's a child. There's nothing wrong with a child. He tells us to be fruitful and multiply. So there, there are these nuances to things. So we need to move forward, because I want to talk about a couple other things. Because when we talk about divorce, you, who is it that really gets hurt? The kids. It's the kids. And I... This frustrates me, and I hate this statement, is that people will say things along the lines of, well, kids are resilient, they'll bounce back. Like, listen, students, I know some of you well enough to know that where divorce is or is not in your family. Hopefully you're not in a family where your parents are together and you just wish they would get divorced so that things would get better. That should, that should never be a desire of ours, and it's unfortunate that that's the case, and there are more conversations that we can have on that. But the reality is, when it comes to divorce, it's the children who get hurt the most. How Think about this for a moment. How selfish is an individual to say, 
I'm not willing to work through something, but I am willing to allow my child to suffer the consequences of it. It's a really tough question to ask. Go ahead, Abby. I believe I can go both ways, though. You're going to have to explain by what you mean, and then we'll talk about it. Yes, I believe that like it can be hurtful or painful towards the kids if y'all choose them divorce. But sometimes, in some cases, it's also painful to watch what's happening within your household. Well, that's what I'm saying. That's why I said, like, in some cases, you might be in a, in a family where you kind of wish your parents would just get divorced. If if there's an individual, and typically it is men who are accused of this, where there is child abuse, okay. We're going to have a serious conversation about where this needs to go. There is, and not all of you are with us, okay, because the abuse conversation came up last week. And we talked about the nuances of what abuse is and is not and what it means and how those words are used. But the reality is, is immediately you have to seek refuge. While reconciliation is the plan of God, putting your own life at risk is not. So I'm not saying if you have a parent who gets drunk and angry and starts hitting and throwing things that you have to stay in there and, and submit to that. I'm not saying that. Do not hear that. I'm talking about a bigger picture and the heart or the objective of what we're working towards. Not the minutia of this is what's going on this week at home. But in our passage... We've walked through divorce, and he's talking about the husband or the, the, the man is the one who wants the divorce. And Jesus says the only way this works is if it is given from the Lord for you to receive it. And the very next bit of the passage, which seems weird, because think about how you would argue for things. Think about how you would have a conversation. Jesus talks about divorce in the very next passage of verse 13 to 15 that Jesus has here for us, that Matthew puts here for us, then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. The disciples were like, don't bring those kids over here. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. See, I, I want you to grab hold of this, this connectivity, students. In his conversation of divorce and whether or not you should be looking to get out of it, what are the, the nuances of that? Then we have right behind it, let's talk about these kids. And I want these kids to know that Jesus loves them, that he is always welcoming them in, he is willing to pray over them. He is willing to bless them, to, to hug them, to hold them. When other people would say, no, keep the kids away from this, Jesus says, no, 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 they need me. Think about how that works in our world. If there is ever a time in which a student or a child needs Jesus, it's in the middle of a conversation of divorce. There is no shortage of individuals who walk through a divorce as the child in the family and have lots of, 
I don't want to use the word demons, but they have lots of trials and issues to work through later because they want to know, what did I do wrong? Was I not obedient enough? Did I have a bad enough attitude? Was I the problem mom and dad couldn't solve? And Jesus' conversation right after this whole, no, you shouldn't be looking for divorce. What you actually should be looking for is bringing these children to me. So let me give you a couple things as takeaways that hopefully more than anything else we've talked about, this is what you walk away with. And I don't think I have this one on the screen, so I'll say it in repeating myself of what you just said. The safest place you can be if you have to walk through a divorce is in the arms of Jesus. And I'm not talking about not being alive. I'm talking about in the sense of you have to go to Jesus. He's the one who's giving out that which can be given that only those who receive it can understand it that we talked about in the previous passage. You have to go to him. You cannot go to something else and expect the same level of comfort. All right? Next takeaway. If your family has experienced divorce, I need you to understand it is not your fault. You did nothing wrong that your parents got divorced. Do not allow Satan to put those thoughts in your mind. We know why divorce happens. Jesus told me in Matthew chapter 19 why divorces happen. He said because of the hardness of hearts, because of sin and hearts, where there is no humility and no forgiveness like we talked about in Matthew 18, where those things aren't present, there's a hard heart, and a hard heart is going to take itself towards divorce. That's why divorce happens. It's not you. Who did cause the divorce? It is always caused by sin. You will not find a divorce that happens because of something other than sin. They might put something different down on the piece of paper that was infidelity. It was irreconcilable differences. It was abandonment. It was abuse. Whatever the case might be, that might be what paper says. The reality is this, students. It's always caused by sin. So let's ask you this question right now. And this applies to the adults in the room. What are you doing right now that might be setting the conditions for you to get divorced later? It's a great question. What do I mean? So let's talk about that. What are some behaviors? What are some actions? What are some conditions that a, a teenager might be acting out, doing, saying, thinking that might set me up for divorce later in life? Zoe? Not recognizing that you already have trauma in your life. Like sometimes you go through stuff and people think that they're okay until they get older and then it like ruins their relationships and they're like, dang, I wasn't okay. So like recognizing that stuff, I guess. Okay. I would agree with you. And what I would say to you, Zoe, is we'd have to go back to Matthew chapter 18 and talk about what do you do when someone wrongs you? 
and walk through that level of humility and forgiveness that's in Matthew 18. Katrina. Okay, but what does selfishness look like as a teenager? Any of you guys ever selfish? All right, so what's, <clears throat> what's selfishness look like between the ages of 12 and 18? All right, you don't want to share your toys. All right, what else? All right, thinking about your own feelings before someone else. Sometimes lying to keep cover your own butt. Okay, lying to cover your own butt. Sean? Pornography. Pornography. What else? A lack of forgiveness, a lack of humility. Students, you should never, if you proclaim to be a believer, if you say you're a Christian, then these words should never come out of your mouth. I'm never going to forgive them. I'll never forgive them for doing that. Because you understand as a Christian, you've been forgiven of the most egregious of crimes. You've sinned against the God of the universe, and he chose to forgive you. In fact, he's so forgiving, he forgave you before you took your first breath. Knowing how offensive you would be. What else? Can you guys think of anything else? Any other conditions that we might be doing now that might be setting us up for the likelihood of divorce. Not that you will. No one is saying if you're selfish as a teenager, you're going to get divorced. What we are saying is if you don't check yourself on that selfishness and you allow it to just grow, you may be running for a divorce. If you don't get pornography out of your life, it may set you up for a divorce. The idea is are you setting the conditions? What else? Tyler? Okay, dating for the status sake or just for the experience? See, this is where we, we struggle. And I think students, and you can, you can disagree with me, and that's okay, you're allowed to be wrong. <laughs> Teenagers in, I'll say, serious dating relationships where you are extensively exclusive, meaning you two alone, you're setting yourself up for a divorce. Why? Why would that be the case? Go ahead, Zoe. Um, I feel like this is like one of the most obvious reasons, but maybe like not the one you should talk about. Sometimes like people do stuff. Like, okay. You know. So the physical activity between yeah. boyfriend and girlfriend. Yeah. All right, but I'm not even just talking about that. What ends up happening? Go ahead, Samantha. Okay. Well, you just said it right there. What are the last three words you just said? Break it apart. Great. What happens to every single dating relationship? Most of the time. They all break up. Great. Malachi, if I spend three years of high school going into a relationship, finding out she's crazy, he's annoying, okay, he's 
into video games way too much. She's way too much into herself. Whatever your problem is, and it's I start the relationship, I stop the relationship. I start it, I stop it. I start it, I stop it. Yep. Always pursuing something else. And let's be honest, girls, you need to know this, and guys, um, I'm calling you out because I know it's true. Girls, boys love the thrill of the chase. We love to be chasing after something. We are naturally competitive, and so we are more than happy to compete for something. If it is your affection, your intimacy, your attention, we want to compete for it. But here's where it falls flat. If they are only consumed with the thrill of the chase, once the hunt is over, they're bored with it. They've, they've accomplished all that they set out to do, and now, well, that's no, now it's no fun. It was more fun trying to chase her down. But now that she's into me, it's like, well, I, I don't care that she, she likes me now. And every single guy in the room can identify that that's the case. We do it with video games. You can do it with statistics and sports. You can do it with anything. Blake, we can do it with the car that we want, the car part that we want. I mean, let's be honest. Once you have something that you really want, maybe you experienced this at Christmas. For the month, two months leading up to Christmas, you had your heart so set on getting something. And you wanted it so bad. And then you get it. And three weeks after Christmas, you're kind of bored with it already. I could have told you that. <laughs> Anyone like that? Maybe it wasn't this year. Have you done that as a kid? You thought this was going to be the best Christmas present ever, and then you finally got it, and after a week you were bored with it. Okay, we do that with things. Students, don't do that with a human. Do not do that with a human. Because as you enter dating relationships, and sometimes we'll use this word called courtship, and here's where I think the two vary. Courtship is, I am setting the conditions to get to know someone so that something else may happen in a more serious relationship down the road. You're look, you have an end goal. And that end goal is usually going to be marriage. Dating is more of, I really need it to be satisfactory now. Next takeaway, please know, students, that divorce is not hereditary. What does hereditary mean? You can inherit it. It comes from your family. Just because you are the child in a divorced family does not mean you have to do the same thing. And don't get caught up in thinking, well, you're more prone to getting divorced because your family came. It just happens in my family. No. If you understand divorce is a result of sin, you have access to the answer to sin. His name is Jesus. So now the flip side of the question. What are you and I doing now to prevent divorce? Are we making commitments and keeping our word? You may not consider it this, but the degree to which you can keep your promise to anyone is setting the condition for you to keep the promise you make to your spouse someday. If you are a liar and a terrible promise keeper now, you're not preventing divorce later. You're setting the conditions for it. 
The degree to which you are honest and sincere and you have integrity with your decisions and your commitments now, the better you're setting yourself up for later. And please understand that God is always, always, always glorified in reconciliation. When a husband and a wife who are at odds get back together, they're able to work through it because of the humility, because of the forgiveness, because of the, I want Christ to be more exalted than me. That's when God is glorified. And let's be honest, even if the reconciliation doesn't fully happen, a woman or a husband who is willing to be committed to a vow that they made, regardless of how much of a loser they married, also glorifies God. Wow. Because you said, I vow before God till death do us part. You might be a bum. You might be a loser. You might be a deadbeat. You might be annoying. But I can, I can work through this. I can endure this. And my God will be glorified because I do. Your happiness is not something God is concerned with. He is concerned with his glory. And if you are only chasing what makes you happy now, you're not setting yourself up for glorifying God in your marriage later. You're setting yourself up for, I want what makes me happy. And understand that one mistake does not merit another. What, that, what I mean by that is just because there's been one divorce doesn't mean there has to be another. Maybe you're in a blended family and there's divorce in your history. Okay. God grants forgiveness for sin when we repent of our sin. And that does not mean there has to be another mistake that's just like that. Because the best case scenario is that the person, both husband and wife, are humble enough to immediately admit their wrongdoing inside that relationship, and it gets mended as a result. And the degree to which you can work through that is the degree to which God is glorified through reconciliation. Yeah, Zoe. Um, so are you saying somebody in my life who would like constantly be wrong by you, like you forgive them and like let them back in your life and you were always trying to like do the right thing by them, but then they would like not do it back. So are you supposed to like sit through that too? Like how long are you supposed to be until you can't do it anymore? Like how long until you forget stop forgiving them? Well not stop forgiving them because I mean you can forgive someone and still distance yourself from them, but I mean like how long are you supposed to continue dealing with that? Well, like, there's, there, there's going to be discretion and wisdom. And none of this is easy, Zoe. Like, we can't walk out of here thinking, oh, this is a simple formula that 1 plus 1 equals 2. Like, no, this is, this is ca like college-level calculus. And you have to understand, the worst part is that two very godly people could give you counsel two different ways. Like, it has to be the Holy Spirit that directs you. But we have to at least be saying, what are the decisions I'm making? How can I most glorify God with what's going on right now? If someone constantly abuses the level of trust that you give them, then you start hedging off the amount of trust that you give them. doesn't mean you cut off the whole relationship, 
Unless, of course, it's someone who is doing evil and we can call it sin. But if we're just saying, well, this is someone that's just kind of stupid, well, that's a different conversation. If someone is actively sinning, well, then I would say for your sanctification, you have to get away from the sin. But that's, that's a, a different relationship than a husband and wife. Because if you ask Paul, the husband and wife relationship, it's different. So, let's close with this. Students, your prayer, my prayer, everyone's prayer should be, God, if that is only able to be done because you give it to people, please give that to me. I want to be so committed, I want to be so true, I want to be so pure that in my relationship dealings, I'm glorifying you. That people will look at me and say, God, God is good because of what, how I've responded in a situation. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time to go through it. I ask you to be with these students that as they grow up, as they go throughout their weeks, that each and every decision that they make, that they would be people of their word, that they would be building good habits now for the future, that we would view sin and wickedness the way you do, that when it does come into our lives, that we would handle it the way you want us to, and that we would glorify you through our actions. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.